The following podcast is a presentation of Project Entertainment Network. Welcome to the Sample Chapter Podcast, the show where authors read a sample chapter from one of their books. Here's your host, Jason A. Meiske. Hello, my friends. Welcome to episode 171 of the Sample Chapter Podcast. Hey, this week we welcome award-winning, best-selling author S.A. Lelchuk. We are discussing his incredible Private Eye series starring Nikki Griffin, his heroine that he created for it. Uh, along the way, we're also going to be discussing how he uh, he drives cross-country regularly and uh, how that he uses that to help inspire his writing. We discuss his first book, Save Me from Dangerous Men, which is also the first book in this series and how well it has done. Uh, it's actually been optioned for TV and film. So that's pretty exciting. Uh, we're also going to be talking about his writing process, getting to know his character, how he got to know her, the things he learned in years of writing before his first book came out. And <laughs> during the reading of uh, One Got Away, you're going to hear about the... You're going to hear the definition of worms, which uh, was a new one for me, but uh, <laughs> but it was funny, and I think you're going to uh, you're going to enjoy that. So make sure you're listening up for that whenever he uh, begins his reading, because it's it's very interesting. <laughs> well, I hope this episode finds you all doing well and in good health. I just got my second COVID vaccination, and you know, fingers crossed. So far, so good. Uh, got that yesterday, so closing in on that 24-hour period where see what happens but uh yeah i'm doing all right feeling good no problem so far uh thank you to everyone who's been uh going back and checking out past episodes uh, it's really exciting lately the show is not only available on all podcast platforms anywhere that you find podcasts that's where you can find this show but we're now globally in just about every country uh, in fact uh this little show was ranking in the top 100 recently in Norway and South Africa and uh, been doing pretty good in India as well. And, uh, oh my gosh, that's just, <laughs> that just blows my mind that uh, so many people are, uh, you know, finding the show and enjoying past episodes and, and listening to the new ones as they come out as well. So I hope you're finding new authors and new books to you and uh, enjoying them. And when you do enjoy them, make sure you leave them a review. And uh, don't forget to let us know as well. And uh, share a favorite episode with friends and let them know, hey, check out this book I found uh, on this show called The Sample Chapter Podcast. So don't forget to tag us so that way we know about that. We'll celebrate with you. You can do that, of course, on social media. You can find the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram very easily just the sample chapter podcast you can also email us if you'd like to reach out to the show and contact us about an author or a guest it is sample chapter podcast at gmail.com or you can leave me a voicemail at 660-851-1146 and of course if if it's a fun voicemail i could be playing it on an upcoming episode hey i invite you to also uh, find and follow our sponsors on social media and uh, check them out click the link in the show notes for each one of them uh, scrivener of course uh, my longtime favorite writing software they're incredible and uh, i know they're they've been actually on uh, social media quite a bit recently 
with the uh, release of Scrivener 3. So, hey, check out this advertisement and learn how you can save 20%. Jason here. Hey, I wanted to take a moment and tell you about my favorite writing tool, Scrivener. Now, I know you've heard about Scrivener because their writing software has been embraced by hundreds of thousands of other writers like you and I, from the novice to best-selling novelists. The reason we all use it is because of Scrivener's core concept to bring all the writing tools you use together in a single application. And with tools like automatic backup, character maps, project goals, and let's not forget that amazing corkboard, you can see why I use Scrivener every day. As a bonus for Sample Chapter Podcast listeners, use code CHAPTER for 20% off your desktop version. Scrivener writing software, built by writers for writers. Next up, I'd like to thank Audible for becoming a partner with the show, offering uh, listeners a free audiobook and a 30-day trial. So, uh, <laughs> without further ado, check out this advertisement from Audible. Hello friends, Jason here, and I wanted to take a moment to tell you about a great offer from Audible. Like you, I'm very busy. I have a full-time job, a family, I'm a thriller author, and I do this weekly podcast. But I also love to read. That's where Audible is a lifesaver for me. Whether I'm mowing the yard, working out, driving back and forth to work, or doing some other menial task, I can still listen to an incredible book through Audible. And now you can get a free 30-day trial by going to audibletrial.com slash sample chapter. By doing that, you'll not only have that 30-day trial, you'll also gain access to guided wellness programs, theatrical performances, A-list comedy, exclusive Audible originals, and even podcasts like the Sample Chapter Podcast. Last year is the first time I ever achieved my own personal reading goals and it was because of some wonderful titles I listened to on Audible. Some of those titles were Ready Player Two by Ernest Cline, narrated by Will Wheaton, the Awaken Online series from Travis Bagwell, narrated by David Stifel, Patient Zero by Jonathan Mayberry, narrated by the incredible Ray Porter, and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention previous guest Scott Meyer with his Magic 2.0 series, narrated by Luke Daniels. It's a lot of fun and definitely worth your time. A full disclosure, by signing up at audibletrial.com slash sample chapter, the show does get a little monetization, which goes directly towards any production needs uh, with the show. So you're also helping us out here by signing up. So what are you waiting for? Head on over now to audibletrial.com slash sample chapter and start your free 30-day trial today. And finally, I want to thank our podcast network that we're a part of, Pop Goes the Culture, home to about a dozen other all pop culture related shows. Lots of fun things going on over there. So click the link in the show notes for them. I also want to thank Project Entertainment Network, our second network that we are a part of, home to about 35 other shows of a very wide variety for you to choose from. So once again, click the link in the show notes and Check out a show like this one. What evil lurks in the heart of Don Mondale? Only Chucky the Buddha, the enforcer of the Mondo Mafia, knows. Join them each week on the Mondo Method podcast as Chuck tries to get Don Mondo to reveal what is best in life and where he hid the bodies. Oh, they also talk about writing and being professional authors. 
The Mondo Method Podcast with Armand Rosamilia and Chuck Buddha. Weekly, wherever you find your podcasts. All right, everyone. Well, without further ado, let's go ahead and get on over to that interview with our guest this week, S.A. Lelchuk. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to the Sample Chapter Podcast. Oh, man, we've got an exciting author for you today. I, you know, what am I saying? Every author that comes on here is exciting, but, you know, every one of them is also extremely unique, and uh, they have something amazing to bring to you, and this week is no exception. This week, we are speaking with S.A. Lelchuk. Uh, S.A. holds a B.A. in English from Amherst College and a Master's from Dartmouth College, where he teaches creative writing. His debut novel, Save Me from Dangerous Men, is the introduction to his series heroine, uh, bookseller and private eye, Nikki Griffin. The series has been optioned for film and television, and the aforementioned Save Me was named USA Today's Best Book of 2019, along with numerous other accolades. Welcome to the show, S.A. Lelchuk. Hey, thanks so much, Jason. It's great to be here. I'm happy to be on the show with you. I'm thrilled to have you here. I mean, man, you know, a master's in writing, I almost feel like I should be like, you know, asking you questions or learning from you than uh, going through here, like, uh, we'll put on a lesson or something. <laughs> well, I, I, I wish they made it, uh, the process easier, but I got, I got a couple initials after my name, that's all. Um, but it was, <laughs> it was fun earning it. So that's, that's a good thing. That is a good thing. That is a good thing. My wife just got her master's in speech language pathology uh, a year ago. And uh, she's she's like, no, they went after her. Being a doctorate is highly sought after. And they went after her hard for a doctorate. And she goes, oh, hell no. No, no, no. I'm done. I'm so done. So <laughs> <laughs> That's willpower right there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so now uh, I know you like to split your time between California and New Hampshire. So uh, how are you doing and how are you coping with uh, the pandemic? Things have been good. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm lucky. I consider myself fortunate. Um, I guess first and foremost, just to have a profession that involves sitting by yourself for long periods of time without <laughs> moving around much. So that was, um, you know, it, things certainly could have been worse. I, when the lockdown hit last spring, um, I was just finishing up uh, the last touches on this current book of mine, One Got Away, and I figured, hey, why not take on a new project? I thought it was either that or I could get really good at baking sourdough. And <laughs> judge, judging by Instagram, there were enough people doing that already. So I thought, heck, I'll just sit down and um, try my hand at something new. So that's how I've spent most of the last year. Um, I head to New Hampshire in the summers. Uh, to teach at Dartmouth. I usually teach summer terms there and then come back out to California for the fall. And again, it was just very lucky because my family has this um, old property by a little lake in the middle of New Hampshire on a tiny dirt road. And so I could go days and almost literally forget that there was a pandemic going on just because um, I wouldn't run into that many other people, um, spend some time on the lake, all that good stuff. So Things certainly could have been uh, worse. I consider myself fortunate. Oh my gosh, well, that's that's fantastic. Sounds like a great setup. And and you were telling me before uh, before we began that you actually like to drive that uh, back and forth quite a bit. That's got to be some time uh, well spent 
within your own head. I mean, I don't know if you take anybody with you or not, uh, but I know from driving a lot previously, it's a lot of time in your own head uh, to maybe uh, come up with a new story idea and uh, develop your characters. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I don't usually have passengers, but there's an open-ended offer. So if anyone does need a lift <laughs> from California anywhere to the Eastern Seaboard this summer, then feel free to give me a call first week of June. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, and, you know, I'd, I'd say two things about driving cross country, you know, first and foremost, just gives you this non, you know, uh, it's like incredible appreciation for satellite radio. Um, <laughs> you know, I have my serious stations and it's hard to feel that lonely. Uh, but it, as you said, you know, that's a real thing that it does give you a lot of time um, in your own head. And that can be a really good thing I've found. You know, it's funny, but the first book in the series, Save Me From Dangerous Men, I came up with the idea uh, late August, you know, a few years back. And this was the night before I was supposed to leave for my cross-country drive heading back to California. And I was frustrated, you know, at first because I had this idea and I was excited. I thought a, you know, bookseller who does vigilante work, I want to get right into this thing. And instead I got to sit down in the car for, you know, 10, 12 hours a day. Mm. And it ended up being a really nice way to just get alone with my thoughts. And, you know, I started hashing out the idea in my head, you know, as I was driving, I literally wrote the first chapter for that book at an Applebee's on Peach Street in Erie, Pennsylvania. Um, and then just it was kind of working on it um, haphazardly throughout the next week or 10 days, you know, driving around a few national parks, things like that. And it ended up being this great way just to get a lot of time alone with the characters. And that's really what I needed. And by the time I hit California, I felt, OK, now I'm able to sit down and really get into this thing. And I feel like I was able to write with a lot less hesitation uh, compared to if I had just um, had the idea and sat down without those two weeks of uh, forced incubation. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Now, are you, are you actually writing this, like stopping to write or do you dictate any of it? You know, I don't dictate anything, um, which I don't even know if that makes me old fashioned or new, new fangled, I, anything in between. Um, I usually just bounce the scenes around in my head. Um, when I park at night, you know, I take some notes over dinner um, try to get a few, you know, scenes down some early chapters, but mostly for me, it's just letting those scenes play out in my head. Uh, and once I have a moment, you know, occasionally I'll write down a bullet point or something like that. But once I have this stuff hashed out, it really does kind of stick there. And then it's waiting for me when I know that it's uh, time to get to it on the page. You know, I might come up with a scene that I know it's not going to happen till a third of the way through the book. And it's kind of fun. It gives me something to look forward to. I say, okay, when I hit page, you know, 90 or hundred, um, the moment is right. And it's rolled around. And now I get to come back to this thing that I uh, came up with a few weeks ago or a couple months ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating. So, so you, uh, it, it sounds like you're not exactly planning it out, but you have certain points of reference that you know, you're going to get to at some point. I've always wished that I could be one of the authors who um, is able to map out the entire, you know, book before it starts. I, I really haven't. I, I've judging from what writers say, I feel like it's probably about 50, 50, you know, mm -hmm. um, some people won't write a page of the first scene until they have the entire thing planned out chapter by chapter. Some don't have a clue. And I feel like if I could do the former, it would be a lot more comforting. 
I wouldn't be writing, you know, with this constant, you know, slight panic of, hey, what happens if I don't know where to go after I finish this page? So, you know, I think there's a lot of reassurance in knowing and having a map, essentially. Mm-hmm. But I just can't work like that. You know, to me, I really do feel like I have to be able to um, just see where the characters are going to go to see how the story is going to build, to see also what I think about. You know, I feel like when I start a book, I just don't know the people I'm writing uh, about well enough to have any confidence to say, this is what's going to happen to you, you know, uh, in 200 pages from now. Mm-hmm. I really need them to uh, teach me a little bit about their preferences and about, you know, their wanderings and what exactly is going to happen. So I, I don't outline, I think for a full, you know, 300 page book, I might end up with like a one to two page outline that I jot down as I write. And for me, I guess that's just how it's always going to be for better or worse. <laughs> no, and I can totally relate to that. My, my first book, I'd kind of mapped it out and I think it was holding me back because I kept trying to figure out how to make each chapter work the way I'd planned it. And it, I was really struggling for the longest time. Whereas my second book, all, all I knew was the ending. That was the only thing I'd come up with this idea, this concept of how it would end. Um, although I hadn't decided whether or not my protagonist was going to be uh, one way or the other. We'll put it that way. <laughs> the mystery there. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so that, but it, so I just kind of sat down. I thought, okay, well, how would somebody get in this situation in the first place? And then I just went from there. And uh, it was a lot of fun discovering this character and the others around him and finding out how he would get in this situation in the first place. And then, you know, what kind of a person um, are they? Um, do they deserve to be in this position or was it, was it completely accidental? And it was, it was a lot of fun discovering that as I wrote it, as opposed to figuring out ahead of time. And I, I don't know, I think I've found very much the same way. I enjoy the, the surprise. And I hear a lot of times that uh, the pros say, if the, if the writer is surprised as you're writing, then the reader will be. Right, for sure, for sure. And that's so interesting that you've tried it both ways. I think you're one of the one of the few people I've talked to who's actually taken on, you know, first one and then the other. Uh, but I think that what you're saying is exactly right, that um, there is a certain level of just pure, sheer fun uh, and getting to, you know, walk onto this kind of like structureless, you know, open playground, if you will, and, you know, figure out what exactly you want everyone to go do. Mm-hmm. Now, your your main protagonist, uh, Nikki Griffin, uh, <laughs> tell me, and I have a little bit of experience with my first book, but tell me your experience in writing uh, from the female perspective. Uh, how, how different was that? You know, it's funny. That was, in some ways, it was very different. And in other ways, I think a little easier than I, you know, might have thought once mm-hmm. I really got into it, you know, and part of Part of it is certainly that this book is a series. And so I've spent quite a bit of time with Nikki. And I feel like the more pages I write with her in it, the easier it becomes um, for me to just kind of stay in her head and not have to constantly step out and wonder, yeah. you know, how how would this action or reaction happen as opposed to if this was a male character? Mm-hmm. But, you know, for me, when I when I came up with the idea, just it immediately felt like it clicked. Um, I never, you know, could have imagined writing this book with a you know male protagonist who is doing the work that Nikki does and so 
you know, right away, I, you know, I, I read a lot and, you know, had it in my mind of, you know, different characters or sorry, different authors who have tried this with their characters. Um, and I think that, you know, there's a couple, there's a couple levels of challenges, I'd say. I'd say one is the superficial, you know, in other words, like what clothes does a man put on versus, you know, a woman versus anyone else in the morning. Mm. And that kind of thing, I think, is handled pretty easily with you, you just need a couple of details, you know, kind of sprinkled judiciously through the book. It's not like every page you need to be going into three paragraphs about what kind of shoes someone's wearing. <laughs> I'm reliving so many things from my first book with, with what you're saying. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry to be uh, imposing flashbacks on you, <laughs> especially before cocktail hour. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's afternoon, so it's okay. So, <laughs> oh, there we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We're af- we're afternoon here in Missouri, so it's good now. <laughs> all right, all right. You got a couple yeah. hours on me. Yeah. So that was, you know, that's one level. You know, just that kind of superficial angle. Then the next level, and I think this is where it becomes harder, but also more interesting. You know, is figuring out how might, um, you know, how might someone react if they're a different gender from you in a different situation and also how might people react to them? And, you know, that becomes kind of this, you know, fun and interesting challenge. Like, for example, in the first book, it opens with Nikki going into this kind of tough, seedy, you know, Oakland bar uh, with the intention. She has a target in mind and she wants to make her she she wants to entice this target this man into hitting on her so and then she obviously has other plans for the evening mm-hmm. um so for me you know part of it is thinking when like me example when i walk into a bar no one's ever looked twice i promise you <laughs> no no <laughs> they the bartender looks at me when i take out my wallet if i'm lucky uh <laughs> but then you know for nikki obviously um you know she can she can make an entrance and she's this striking figure tall and she's wearing you know a leather jacket and motorcycle boots and you know she puts on in this scene she puts on lipstick which she wouldn't normally do because she's presenting herself as you know a certain type of figure so that this person will then notice her she wants to be noticed within this bar Mm. so you know playing with that idea of like you know the male gaze and you know thinking about if you're a woman walking into a bar you know, full of, you know, guys who are half in the bag and, you know, kind of staring openly and things like that. Sure. You know, how can you like, you know, play into that? And at the same time, how can you use that? And in this particular scene, how can Nikki kind of flip that around um, and use it for her own advantages? So, you know, for me, when you're writing a female character, you know, those, those are the kind of deeper considerations to be thinking about. And it, it gets interesting. And it's, you know, a lot of fun to do I think and hope that you can pull it off in the right way I also found that you know like you know Nikki is a a protagonist who's about my age you know I was writing from my mid-30s about someone in their mid-30s and she lives in the Bay Area Um, and so there are you know some similarities and when people ask me how do you possibly write you know from another gender I said well maybe it's in some ways uh, less challenging than if I was trying to write a story about, you know, a six-year-old boy living in 17th century Russia. I know much less about that. I've not Mm. experienced that. And so, yes, that, you know, I might share gender in common with that kid, but not much else. And looking at a pretty different world than me. So to me, that might even be more challenging. Um, I guess there's challenges 
uh, anytime you step away from who you exactly are in fiction, but that's one of its chief delights, I think. Yeah, yeah. And it sounds like getting inside her head really, uh, you know, and getting to know her really helped inform the rest of her character and, and, and kind of developed scenarios and how she would react to things uh, as you went, which that's fantastic. I mean, it, 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 that character becomes a real person for you and, and eventually for the reader. Exactly, exactly. And it's really fun to see it happen and to kind of uh, see that formation take place. Yeah. Now, I, I love the combination that she is a, a bookseller and a private eye. Now, where, where did that come from? <laughs> well, you know, I, I joke to people that my dream in life was always to open a used bookstore. And eventually I realized that might not happen. And so I did the next best thing and had my fictional protagonist open a used bookstore instead. And so I can kind of live vicariously through Nikki's shop, The Brimstone Magpie. <laughs> but, you know, when I when I thought of the character, I really I thought of both those halves together um, and they just seem to fit really, really well in this in this fun way that she has this bookstore and it's right on Telegraph Avenue in Berkeley, which is obviously a city full of, you know, amazing bookshops. And I frequent them constantly. But then I had this idea that um, she has this little office, you know, in an unmarked staircase right above her bookstore. And sometimes a customer will come in or a person will come in who has a problem that, you know, a book can't necessarily solve. And that's when Nikki will invite this person upstairs to her other office and talk about ways that she can fix whatever their problem is, mm -hmm. uh, even if that means stepping away from her role as bookseller. And so to me, that that duality, you know, that kind of like literal duality of the two floors of this, you know, building, you know, books underneath and the PI and the vigilante work um, up above, you know, really just seems to feed into like who Nikki is that she she loves books. And, you know, in her mind, books saved her. She had this she her family um, had this terrible tragedy happen to her, you know, when she was very young um, and it traumatized her in you know, these permanent and profound ways. Um, and a lot of her childhood and adolescence were spent trying to get past that trauma and find out who, you know, who am I in the world and what should I be doing here? You know, probably pretty universal questions we go through in our 20s. But for Nikki, you know, she was in her mind kind of saved by books that they, were, they became this anchor when she didn't have her family and she didn't have, you know, a lot of security and she didn't have stability. But she could go to a library and she could take out a book and she could read it and you know, be transported. Uh, books are transportive. So to me, I knew that had to be part of her, you know, that love of books. But at the same time, she's a character who, you know, has a lot of, um, you know, proclivities that lend themselves to PI work. She's somewhat solitary. She's very patient. She's very observant. Uh, she's certainly willing to use violence when, when need be, um, proportionately to what's happening and what's being done. And so these qualities, you know, add up to someone who realizes at some point in her early life that she's pretty good at doing uh, investigative work and functioning as a PI and as a protector of people, especially defenseless people and of women. And so for me, it was really exciting to just play with this kind of um, duality of these two different sides of Nikki. She does love the books, but at the same time, she's always going to have that deep fierce d desire to protect and that's always going to be an equal part of her and i think in some ways the character 
is constantly trying to you know tamp one down um, and present herself as a very average citizen, but she knows very well um, that that's only part of who she really is. Oh, wow. Uh, well, she sounds incredible. I mean, and the book's got a ton of accolades, uh, not only from USA Today, but I mean, uh, Kirkus and uh, Barry Award coming up, uh, Hudson Booksellers. I mean, good grief. And then, of course, you've got the uh, the options that have been sold already for film and television, which, I mean, that's like every author's dream, really, to uh, get that done. The, the idea, at least, I, I know how that doesn't always work out that way, but, uh, you know, the idea that, yep, rights have been sold, so we'll see what happens. That's got to be a lot of fun. Absolutely, absolutely. And, yeah, like you said with the option, everyone everyone seems to agree, you know, hold your breath, say a few prayers, and see what happens. But, yeah, regardless, it was really fun, um, especially since, it was a debut book that started this series and it was fun to see that there were a lot of people out there who seemed to enjoy the story and enjoy Nikki. Um, I wanted her to be a kind of throwback character in some ways. Cause I, as a kid, I grew up reading, you know, Chandler and Hammett and, you know, all the great California crime writers. And so I wanted her to feel a little bit like a throwback to those kind of tough, you know, quiet, you know, reserved methodical, you know, uh, PIs who could toss back a neat scotch with the best of them, you know, and at the same mm -hmm. time do, do whatever needed to be done. And so I think Nikki feels a bit like that, but at the same time, you know, she's a very contemporary character. Uh, in the first book, she finds herself embroiled in this uh, case involving a kind of shadowy, you know, Silicon Valley startup dealing with AI technology. And so she's someone who doesn't even own a cell phone, you know, she's, um, not a diehard embracer of, you know, all technology. And yet she gets caught up in this case, you know, involving exactly that. So I had fun playing with that kind of um, those, those currents, you know, with at one point, you know, at one moment feeling a bit more of a throwback to some earlier time and yet being jerked semi unwillingly into the future. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so now, I mean, you're obviously you're a, a a teacher of, of uh, creative writing at college. Uh, but where did you get started writing? Has this been a lifelong passion for you? Have you always been writing? And uh, how many start and stop stories do you have in the drawer? Oh, I, I had to buy a new desk just, just to get more drawers in it. <laughs> I, I got plenty of material, I promise you that. Yeah, I mean, you know, write, writing, it's it's always been what I wanted to do. And I, you know, I feel lucky because I, I knew that just so early on, you know, I remember in high school, my friends would be talking about what they might want to do. And, you know, I, I'd never feel that question. I always knew it to me. The challenge was always getting to that point, not, you know, figuring out uh, what, what I should be doing with my time or my life. Mm -hmm. And obviously, you know, it's, um, it's a process to put it very mildly, uh, just so much uncertainty, you know, it's, it's, challenging and you know i i did my fair share of you know uh you know bartending or like you know working at a french bistro in new york by day and you know trying to go right you know by night actually it's probably more the other way around to be honest <laughs> but so i you know i was i was always working on stuff you know even as a kid you know from like um you know almost literally before i could write you know i'd be dictating and you know my mom would be like you know taking down the story and things like that so i always knew the direction I wanted to go. Um, I think a lot of my 20s were spent 
just figuring, you know, figuring out things like um, voice and tone and style, you know, style and kind of the, the deeper sense, not just, you know, uh, what is it, how does a page read or what does it look like, but, you know, more fundamentally, what kind of things interest me, you know, and what kind of things might I be decent at talking about. And to, as, as you said, I mean, I, I got a drawer that's full of, you know, um, you know, manuscripts and, you know, stories and all kinds of things. And looking back on them, I think everything was useful. Everything taught me something. It's like an apprenticeship, you know, where mm. you're going to go work for the village blacksmith and you're going to get, you know, <laughs> 10 cents a week. But after five, 10 years, you're going to be really good at making a horseshoe or whatever else someone needs. So <laughs> exactly. So to me, yeah, that's that's really, you know, what it was that um, whether I don't know whether you believe in the 10,000 hour rule or, you know, anything like that. Uh, it really is just, you know, putting in the time just constantly and, you know, writing, it can be frustrating because you're oftentimes not getting paid to be doing it. And there's no, you know, uh, guarantee that at the end of the process, you're going to get a contract or, you know, get a representation or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of it is, I think, just kind of, um, you know, putting your head down and trudging onwards <laughs> and having, you know, some kind of self-belief that, you know, what you're working on is, you know, is worth it, is worth your time, let alone anyone else's time who might happen to read it. So, yeah, I, I learned a lot, you know, through failures, through things that didn't work. I look back on my work and I think some of this stuff, I could probably blow the dust off and get it out there and it might be fun to do. Uh, others, I think, will probably stay in the drawer for the foreseeable future. <laughs> But, you know, it's, um, you're always, always learning, always progressing, I think, you know, it's, it's no coincidence that generally when you pick up a book, it hasn't been written by someone who's much under the age of 30. I think that, you know, you, there is a certain truth that you just have to go through life and find yourself a little bit uh, before you reach a stage where uh, other people might want to hear your thoughts or read what you're saying. Uh, yeah, that's, that's exactly right. I, I, completely agree with you because i had i had the opportunity where after i'd gotten out of the military uh, a couple of years within a few years my wife joined and i became the stay-at-home father to our three kids raising them at home and this is like early days of the internet um so we're somewhere else now in the united states we were in north dakota at that time and uh, fortunately there was internet there and I was taking correspondence <laughs> courses on writing and uh, learning it and taking care of the kids. And although I had, I learned a lot and I, I have, <laughs> I have a lot of stories I can build on maybe later. I just kept running into dead ends. And uh, for a long time, I kind of dealt with like after those six years were up and I needed to go back to work. Uh, I, I felt really down on myself for a while for like feeling like I wasted so much time and I, Oh, this is, you know, maybe just wasn't meant to be, but I look back on it now is I learned a lot and I use a lot of what I learned at that time to inform my writing today. And not just that, but the jobs I've had since then and the life I've lived since then, because that's been, oh gosh, that's been 20 years ago now, uh, since those days. And that's a lot of living in between there that's informed the way I write today that I couldn't have done then when I was in my early twenties or mid twenties, uh, up to 30. And I, I couldn't have done that. Uh, whereas right, now, exactly. exactly. I, yeah. And once I, once I got real and got serious about it, I knew I was ready. 
and I was able to sit down and finally finish a story and then another one. And it was like, yeah, all right, this is, this is the life I had been wanting all along, but I couldn't have done it when I was younger. I just wasn't there mentally. Absolutely. I mean, you know, that saying a stitch in time saves nine. I, I don't think it applies to writing books. I really don't. I, yeah. I, there, there are not many shortcuts. I've, I've certainly not found my way to any shortcuts. <laughs> Fantastic. Now you got the, uh, the sequel one got away is coming out here in April, which should be when this episode's coming out. Uh, what, uh, what can we expect from, from Nikki uh, in uh, this, this next book? Sure. So in this next book, uh, One Got Away, Nikki finds herself, she's she's hired by this uh, very wealthy San Francisco old money family. Um, and they uh, have hired her to follow this con man who has been defrauding and you know stealing from the elderly mother, the matriarch of the family. And so that's a very basic, you know, uh, opening to it. And then Nikki soon starts to realize that um, no one's telling her the truth and everyone seems to have a hidden agenda of some kind. And this family is not necessarily, um, you know, perfectly uh, happy hand in hand, you know, with each other that the different siblings, you know, there's infighting and different people want different things. And in fact, this con man, you know, there might be something more going on than a simple con or than a simple steal. And so she ends up following him and very soon realizing that there's more to the picture uh, than the basic case that she took on. And by that point, she's quite caught up in a bit of action and some larger events that are unfolding sort of outside of her immediate vision. The prologue, you know, this book opens on this, uh, you know, really uh, tough uh, crime scene uh, with a U-Haul truck full of dead bodies. And Nikki doesn't see that right away. So the reader kind of starts off knowing a little bit more than she does about what might be at stake, what this you know larger uh, thing going on might uh, might be, and so that's something that Nikki has to find her way to through the uh, through the story. And it was fun for me writing a sequel because I got to bring back some of the characters, the secondary characters who people enjoyed and I enjoyed writing from the first book. And so, for example, her boyfriend Ethan, you know, um, now is teaching is an assistant professor at University of Berkeley and he wants to move in together and Nikki's a little more hesitant. She obviously values her space and she's not sure if, you know, jumping into that is the right idea. And so she's kind of balancing the uh, kind of commonalities of like a domestic life that we've all probably been through. We've all probably had to make that decision of, you know, when to move in with a significant other or something like that. But at the same time, she's also um, being sucked deeper and deeper uh, into this set of crimes that really seems to have occurred, you know, through the state of California and maybe even beyond. So there's something uh, pretty sinister underneath the like uh, gleam and polish of this, you know, uh, perfect old money San Francisco family who uh, wants Nikki to do this seemingly simple job for them. <laughs> seemingly simple. That's <laughs> how many Magnum PI episodes did I see where it was always seemingly simple? <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so I'm kind of dating myself here a little bit. But, uh, that sounds fantastic, though. I cannot wait to uh, pick these up for myself and check it out. So 
Saul, thank you so much. This has been a blast. Where can uh, where can people find and follow you? So they can uh, follow my Instagram, which is just S.A. Lelchuk. Um, I have a Facebook page also, S.A. Lelchuk. And they can uh, check out my website, which is www.salelchuk.com. So those are all places where I can, I can be found and the books will be obviously available both online and through uh, local bookstores, Barnes & Noble and everything else. All right. Fantastic. And we'll have links for all that in the show notes, everyone, you know, that's where they are. So click those links and go follow them on Instagram, Facebook, and uh, of course, get over to his website too, to check out all of his other books. And I think I saw where there's even a sign up to get notified of uh, uh, upcoming news and and, uh, releases that you have. Yes, absolutely. I'm actually doing a uh, giveaway too. So anyone who fills out the contact form on my website uh, prior to publication, I'll be giving away a signed copy of One Got Away. Outstanding. I love it. All right. Well, you may see my name in there as well. So, but <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, uh, again, Saul, thank you so much. This has been a blast and uh, man, I can't wait to uh, hear this. I actually checked out the, the sample on the website uh, being read by uh, January Lavoie from, uh, from save me that was fantastic she's amazing when when january agreed to take on the voice of nikki uh i thought what a just perfect perfect person for this um she does such a great job and she's back for the sequel which is even better oh man yeah she was captivating so so thank you so much for coming on and uh ladies and gentlemen without further ado time for me to step aside with my cup of coffee and uh or maybe another drink since it is later in the afternoon now uh, and the floor to my guest, S.A. Lelchuk with One Got Away. So I'm going to be reading chapter one. When about to hand over the keys to something important, seeing doubt is never reassuring. I raise my helmet visor. You don't park motorcycles, do you? The young valet eyed my red Aprila like it might rear back and kick him. I can try, he offered. I have a bicycle, two wheels. That's kind of the same. I think I'll pass. There's street parking down the block, he suggested. In answer, I pulled up next to the row of polished brass luggage carts, the motorcycle's big engine echoing under the confines of the covered entrance. I cut the engine, used my boot heel to flip the kickstand down, swung a leg over, and pulled my helmet off. I'm not sure if you're allowed to leave it there, the valet said, watching me with mild interest. I headed for the revolving door. Call me an optimist. It was my first time at the Grand Peninsula in Knob Hill, a storied San Francisco hotel, white stone, colonnaded like a palace, partially rebuilt after catching fire in the 1906 quake. Presidents and movie stars had stayed here, weighty matters discussed by important people in tomb-silent suites. My motorcycle boots clicked through a marble lobby of soft peaches and grays, chandeliers spilling golden light, Whoever handled decorations had a healthy flower budget. Vases of careful arrangement spurted like bright fountains. The clientele seemed to be largely what someone had once described to me as worms, white, old, rich men. There were other five foot eight women in leather bomber jackets and motorcycle boots. I wasn't seeing them. A bony manager type in a funeral black suit approached. Can I help you find something? I could use an elevator. Got one? He didn't smile. Are you a guest? In the next life, I hope. In that case, who are you here to see, he prodded. I thought that was my concern, I said. 
if you're sticking to the lobby, but the hotel's concern if you're going up. I smoothed hair that had been mussed by my helmet. Martin Johannesson asked me to meet him here. He should be expecting me. The manager took a deferential step back as though a scowling 10 foot tall Johannesson might pop up in front of him. My apologies. Apparently the person I was about to meet could open doors. About five seconds later, I was in a very nice elevator headed up to the penthouse level. The gilded door and ornamental bars made me feel like a bird in the world's most expensive cage. Nikki Griffin, thank you for coming on short notice. Martin Johannesson was in his mid fifties, clean shaven and fastidious, dressed in a navy suit. I didn't know much about men's fashion, but he didn't seem to shop in the clearance bins. I followed him into a spacious living area scattered with plush couches and polished furniture. Floor to ceiling windows showed off a San Francisco Bay. It was a mirror clear day and I could see Alcatraz Island and beyond that, the Golden Gate. Coffee, tea, he offered. Coffee, please. Martin pressed a button on the wall. They'll bring some. Come, sit. We sat. I crossed my legs and got comfortable. What's the problem, I asked him. He frowned. How do you know there's a problem? People don't hire me for wedding planning. True enough, I suppose. He seemed to be thinking about where to start. A distracted man who, even in the midst of his distraction, meant to be careful about what any speech might cost him. There is, as you surmise, a problem, he finally admitted. Rather a substantial one. It has to do with mother. He fell silent as a waiter rang and entered, pushing a linen-covered service cart. The waiter poured coffee for us out of a silver urn, then set the urn down and left. Johannesson fiddled with a creamer as he continued. Mother is quite elderly at 81, but still insists on staying in the same Russian hill duplex she's occupied for the past 25 years since my father passed. She can be quite fixed in her ways. It was only after she backed into a gas station attendant last year that we finally got her to agree to a chauffeur. Better late than never, I observed, since he seemed to expect me to say something. That's quintessential mother, he went on. As her son, I feel I can use the word stubborn with both affection and accuracy. And mother insists on maintaining a rather high degree of control over her affairs. I like her already. Johannesson gave me a thin smile. Many people like mother. She is undeniably vivacious. She is also undeniably wealthy. He offered a meaningful look. Some people like that, too. I didn't say anything. He wasn't done. After my father passed, she never remarried, but she continued to see a series of, well, gentlemen friends, for lack of a better term, dalliances, affairs of the heart, whatever you want to call it, which is fine, of course. She should be free to see whomever she likes. He added sugar to his coffee, sipped, then added more. I had already lapped him. I held myself to another cup. Seeing he had fallen quiet, I prompted, accept. As I had hoped, the word seemed to wind the music box back up. Recently, this past year, she began seeing a younger man, Martin resumed, a much younger man, an Englishman, Oxford-educated psychologist in town for a lecture series. Mother became quite enamored of this fellow. Not that she shared a great deal of this with us, God forbid. She plays her cards close, Mother does. Us? He looked surprised at the question. Myself and my three siblings, William and Ron, my two older brothers, and Susan, my younger sister. I took advantage of the moment to ask, are you close with them? Martin stirred his coffee. Maybe close is the wrong word. 
My sister maintains a certain remove from our family. As for my brother, William, he was in a rather awful accident almost a month ago. It left him in a less than communicative state. And Ron? Ron? He seemed to be thinking how to phrase something. At no time in my life would I have called this especially close. Family was not a topic that Martin seemed to relish discussing. So, Dr. Oxford, on the lecture circuit, I said. Martin nodded. Except it turns out that the fellow is neither a doctor nor an Oxford man. As a saying when a stitch in time saved nine, how much? He stared. How much? How much is he taken? Isn't that why I'm here? You certainly have a way of cutting to the chase, Nicky. He sipped his coffee, different emotions playing over his narrow face. Mother, as I said, demands a high degree of autonomy over her affairs, but I've managed to get my hands on a few of her financial statements. As best we can tell, over the last year, she's transferred at least $1.5 million to Dr. Jeffrey Tyler Coombs. Needless to say, the man does his banking offshore. One and a half million. No wonder you want to get it back. Yes, indeed, Martin agreed. A lot of money. And that's not counting several hundred thousand dollars worth of luxury watches, hotel stays, and some extraordinarily sizable department store bills. And a Porsche. I tried to think of something cheerful to say. Boxster? No such luck. 911, his face drooped, fully loaded. I poured myself a third cup of coffee. How bad a dent did that leave? Well, the money is obviously significant, but truth be told, mother will be just fine. To be clear, he's not actually stealing this? Martin shook his head. I wish he was, believe me. Things would be a lot less complicated. But no, mother has been duped into giving all of this freely enough, from a legal standpoint. Then what's bugging you, the morality? He didn't answer directly. May I ask, Nikki, what you know about our family? I shrugged. Same as most people, probably. You oversee a pharmaceutical fortune over a century old. You give money to every worthy cause between here and Pluto. And you pop up on the Forbes list as fast as they can print them. True enough, he nodded in assent. But there's a reason you don't read much about our family in the papers. Despite our considerable holdings and fairly prominent place in San Francisco society, we have always prized discretion. No messy tabloid fodder, no melodramatic suicides or scandals. There's a well-known saying that all press is good press. Members of our family are taught from a young age to believe the reverse. With the exception of our charitable works and foundation, we try to avoid publicity. There didn't seem to be anything for me to say, so I kept quiet. Johannesson poured more coffee for himself. My mother is elderly. She hasn't been in perfect health. I loathe the idea of her being taken advantage of, conned to call a spade a spade. Does she feel that way, I wondered? Does anyone who's being conned, he returned? By the time they understand the truth, it's too late. In the meantime, for all I know, maybe it feels like the most exciting thing in the world. As her son, I want to intervene before things reach a point of real harm. The man is a thief and deserves consequences, but I'm also motivated by a more practical concern. If word gets out that our family is an easy target, every swindler in the world will show up with a bouquet of roses and sweet words for mother. Why not go to the police? He's done nothing illegal. Not yet, anyway. So what do you want me to do? There are a few reasons people like to avoid police. My prospective client had named only one of them. As if confirming my thought, Martin steepled his hands and stared at his intertwined fingers. I overheard a conversation between them. Very recently, this was. Last week. I have reason to believe that my mother is being blackmailed by this man. 
What makes you think that? You're talking quite frankly about money, but a much larger amount in the millions. I heard him tell her that she needed to decide soon something to that effect, or that genie would be out of the bottle. That was the phrase he used. Do you know what it's about, the blackmail? He shook his head. I have no idea. That's what I need you to learn. Did you try asking your mother? That seems easiest. Martin's face soured. My mother can be quite private. My whole life, she has always made it clear that she will come to us if seeking our advice. I tried to talk to her and got nowhere. What do you want me to do after I find out? If I can find out. Martin had clearly thought about this. Then we offer Coombs a choice. Either lay off and buy a one-way ticket out of town or face immediate arrest. He turned the cup in his hands. Can I count on you, Nikki? Will you help? I can try. I poured myself more coffee. I'd gone through three cups already and had every intention of continuing right through to the end of the pot or the end of the meeting, whichever came first. I drank my coffee black. Cream and sugar were distractions. The Grand Peninsula did a good job with their coffee. Fancy hotels didn't always guarantee good coffee. Kind of like family money didn't always guarantee good sense. You'll be working on an expense account, naturally, added Martin. Spare no cost whatsoever. I nodded, hoping he wouldn't add that I should leave no stone unturned. It was astounding how many new clients felt the need to drop that in. He pulled a wallet-sized photograph from his pocket. Take this, you can keep it. I put my cup down and took the picture, seeing a broad-shouldered, good-looking man in a tailored pearl-gray suit sitting at an outdoor cafe. Gold flashed from a cufflink, and his eyes were piercing blue. I looked closely. There's something about his face. Even here, through the small photograph, as though his eyes seemed to promise interesting things. Anything else you need, Martin wondered. What are your siblings' addresses? And your mother's, I asked. His face tightened. Why? To go talk to them. I'd been going to add, of course, but decided that wasn't polite. He seemed suspicious. My siblings, sure, I suppose, if you can be discreet, but why is mother necessary? As I told you, she hasn't been in perfect health. She's frail, and she's not quite as keen as she once was. Besides which, she values her privacy. I understand, but this whole thing is about her. I have to speak to her. Martin thought this over. He nodded reluctantly. Very well, she's in Scottsdale until next week, I believe. We have property there. When she's back, I'll set up a meeting. He gave me a card with his number and wrote me a check for a retainer, signing his name with a meticulous swirl. I took the check and started toward the door. I'll be in touch soon. Oh, and Nikki? I looked back. Yes? This is very important, this job. I'm counting on you to leave no stone unturned. Right. I left the suite and stepped back into the elevator. As a polished door slid shut, I was thinking again about a cage door closing. Well, there we go. That was S.A. Lelchuk reading a sample chapter from his next novel, One Got Away. The book comes out a week from today when this episode drops, April 13th. You can pre-order it right now by clicking the link in the show notes. Don't forget to also follow Saul on his website and social media. Please follow our sponsors and podcast friends alike and hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out next week when we are back with Katie Salitis and her weapon of magical destruction. That's going to be a fun one. So until then, take care, everybody.
This has been a presentation of the Project Entertainment Network.